You're listening to The Gamer Podcast, our first episode. I'm Eric Schweitzer from the Gamer.com editing team, and today we're talking about Halo Infinite's technical test from last weekend, the new Pokemon Go changes, the Switch OLED, and much, much more. Let's go! Welcome to the Gamer Podcast. I'm here with Kimar. Hello. And Jade King. Hello. And our first topic today is the Halo Infinite beta. Uh, you both got a chance to play it last weekend, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, because this was a closed beta. It was only for Xbox insiders and press and influencers and stuff. But since uh, we got a good look at the game over a year ago and then it was delayed for a long time, uh, I think people are, are wondering how it's shaping up now. Um, Jade, what, what's your impression of it so far? Uh, mostly positive, to be honest. Okay. I suppose the technical test was a very... You can tell FIFA 3 are being rather coy about what they want to show right now and in terms yeah. of dishing out maps and mechanics. But the technical test over the course of... I think it was like three or four days, essentially. They, they started off with one map and then they expanded that out to free over the weekend with bot matches and i think there were brief periods where you could play against other players okay so what all what all could you do during the beta it was just uh standard team-based slayer so it was four players versus four players and that was pretty much all you could do and there was also like a battle pass which it won't carry over to the full game but it gave you a taste of what that live service element of halo infinite will be like and I played probably about five or so hours over the course of the weekend, but I came away being impressed, but also somewhat concerned about some, some elements like the jump, which I'd share with Kian as well. But but it feels like a solid combination of the stuff that we that a lot of fans love from Halo 1 to 3 and some of the stronger elements from 4 and 5, while phasing out a lot of the negative criticisms that were in 4 and 5 that 343 introduced that fans just hated. Kim, what was your impression of it so far? I am much more ambivalent towards it. Um, I have been playing Halo since I was like five or six years old, um, mm. which, you know, you you shouldn't be like, you know, playing Halo at five years old, probably. Probably um, But, you know, this is a series that I've grown up with um, for the last 20 years. Um, 20 years this year, actually. I think Combat Evolved was 2001. Yeah, but, yeah. Launch title. I 100% yeah more more ambivalent towards it because I think that it occasionally feels like old school Halo which you know is an objectively good thing for people who have been following the series for a long time and had qualms with 4 and 5 um I think Reach is a good game ODST is quite good but I think 1 to 3 is where Halo was really special um not just because of some sort of nostalgia bias but because you know, the campaigns were coherent. Halo 3 Forge is probably one of the best multiplayer features in a game of all time. Um, the maps were excellent across all three of those games. But while this felt like Halo occasionally, what it's when it felt like Halo that you noticed what was missing. Um, hmm. So you could be like, oh yeah, this feels like Halo. And then you're like, oh wait, like, you know, it does, but only partially. Um, as Jade mentioned there, the jump, I've... 
I wrote like a thousand words yesterday. It's not up yet about the jump because the jump is literally one of the core tenets of what makes Halo Halo. Master Chief is a seven foot tall super soldier and he jumps like 10 feet in the air. This jump is like, you know, there's no kind of like floaty hang time or anything like that. Um, it doesn't feel necessarily optimized to, you know, sort of like leap from platform to platform. There are times when you can make jumps if you use the ledge climbing mechanic, but I think that that interrupts the flow of Halo because Halo is intensely chaotic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it, that just slows things down. It feels as if maybe the level design for some of the maps is designed to incentivize using this new grappling hook, which I'm like, well, no. I mean, I want to, like, you know, hang in the air for four seconds and line up a no-scope headshot across the map. Um, That is what Halo is that differentiates it from other shooters, especially now in the modern era where loads of shooters are essentially the same. Um, I, I had fun, but my main takeaway from the Halo Infinite beta, and I played for, like, eight hours... Um, after finishing up on the last day was I want to play Halo 3. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm unsure if that is a testament to the fact that Halo Infinite has a quality of the old school Halo fans miss so much, or if it's a lackluster game that makes me feel like, oh, I'm playing Halo, but I could be playing a better Halo. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems to me that there's this impression that there was the Bungie Halo and then there was the 343 Halo and there's not enough continuity between those generations and i think a lot of people were hoping that it uh infinite was going to bring us back to classic halo but it sounds like what you're describing is even more like new mechanics and more deviation from what made halo great quote unquote jade is that your impression too i feel like the reason this game has taken too long to make is because after halo 5 guardians was very much I imagine 343 spent quite a few years there just thinking, what do we need to do to ensure that Halo is relevant in the modern day? Because shooters have moved on since Bungie's original trilogy, and people have also moved on, and shooters have kind of adapted to what online games are like nowadays. And Halo Infinite feels like both an attempt to harken back to the original trilogy whilst also trying to be a modern game that pulls away from that. So, like, I'm very much in the middle ground right now after the technical Mm -hmm. test where I I enjoy a lot of what it's doing, but we haven't seen nearly enough from the complete suite of multiplayer options. And to me, more importantly, the campaign and what that ends up being, especially with Infinite pitching itself as a live service experience where there's going to be multiple campaigns and multiple seasons. So obviously it's, it's a game now where they could build upon the game mechanics moving forward in the years to come, but also... If this is the halo we're going to have for the next decade, part of me is worried that if they don't stick the landing with the launch, then are people going to stick around to see it evolve in the first place? Yeah, and that's what we saw with Halo 5. And probably before that, too, was this, uh, at least in the esports side of things, right? Halo was, nothing could touch Halo for for many years. I mean, that's where... The, the the biggest streamers uh, in the world came from Halo. Ninja came from Halo. Uh, but then, uh, I don't know when it happened, if it was Halo 4 or Halo 5, but uh, the, the pro scene for Halo is, like, non-existent now. 
um, for the most part. Uh, and I wonder if if 343 wants to bring that back, I assume that they would, especially if they're going for a live service thing. I assume that they want uh, they want eSports attention uh, for the new game. Um, but it sounds like that's not going to be a sure, a sure thing. I think that's a big reason for them going free to play because they realize mm-hmm. uh, they need to both leverage Game Pass for the campaign and go free to play with their multiplayer to compete with games like Fortnite, Apex Legends, and even even MOBAs to an extent that are, that are exist in the zeitgeist of streaming and esports. Like I think Microsoft is aware that Halo needs to stay relevant, but I think Infinite will very much be like the test to see if that franchise can stick around for the long term. Because Halo is immediately iconic and millions of people know what it is, but whether that relates to the original trilogy that a lot of people have nostalgic nostalgia for or the stuff 343 is doing is kind of hard to tell. Halo's multiplayer is incredibly varied compared to other uh, shooters uh, because you've got like the arena style. Uh, where it's just like four on four, so everything's very close. And then you've got the big Battlefield ba- uh, Blood Gorge style map. So which kind did we see in the beta? So the first map I played, which was on the first day of the beta, um, was this sort of linear small map. There's a warehouse on one side. There's a raised platform on the other side um, that are, you know, set as the um, origin spawn points. Um there is an enormous structure dividing the map into two halves, two vertical halves, and then there is one underground passage. But the map is incredibly nondescript. Um, it does not feel like it's built to accommodate the kind of like 1v1 firefights that you often get in Halo, um, where you come up against one person, you empty a half a clip or a full clip of your standard AR, and then you melee each other and you both die, or else maybe you get away with a sliver of health. Um, but it just, I don't know. It was, it, it was just felt like messy. Um, it like, it, yeah, you've got blood gulch, as you said, like in, in the original halo, then you've got Zanzibar and halo two, you've got like Valhalla and Sandtrap and halo three. Those are all excellent maps that are huge sprawling maps. Like, you know, Sandtrap has like the elephants on either side of it. Valhalla has two enormous towers and banshees. But then you've also got maps like The Pit and Foundry and Guardian. Guardian is one of the best Halo maps of all time, and it is tiny. It just has, like, that little platform in the middle, all those sort of, like, meandering paths. Like, you know, one of them leads out into sort of a small forest area. But it feels extremely focused, and it also takes verticality into account because it has those gravity lifts that shoot you up onto the platform. There's a lot of... um, understanding how halo movement works required for that far more so than fps skill uh whereas the second map i played was a little bit better like you know it did lean into verticality but also all of the raised corridors were blocked off by a fourth wall um it's you could wander around that map in 4v4 slayer for two and a half minutes without seeing anybody Mm. um it seems as if and again, like, you know, this was a technical preview. So, I mean, what? There were two maps. Um, who knows if they even make it into the final game? Uh, they mm-hmm. could just be prototypes for something much more interesting. But from what I saw, I was like, this just is not even remotely impressive, especially because map design is such a fundamental aspect of Halo multiplayer. Um, and like, you know, that kind of feeling of... In the campaign, like, you know, the thing that defines Halo, um, you know, as opposed to all of the other 
pretty identical FPS uh, that are out there these days is that it is intensely alien from guns like the Needler to like, you know, I always think of that. Um, I think it's the second map in Halo Combat Evolved and not the remastered version, the original version. And you look up and the sky is just so blue with nothing in it except this immense Halo ring. And you're like, I am on a planet that nobody has ever been to before. Like that there is a crashed Pelican over there. Like, you know, there are grunts and elites running around and, Halo is defined by the fact that it is distinctly its own thing. And these maps could be in any game. They could be in any game and they would be pretty poor too. maps in any game. So, I don't know. Like, I mean, I had fun. I just, nothing about it convinced me that Halo Infinite is going to, like, you know, resurrect this series in the way that 343 probably wants to. Hmm. Uh, Jade, has there been indication that they're going to be bringing back everything from the older games? too like all the old maps and stuff like that um no they said the build they used for this book for this technical test was a few months old and they'll be doing more in the future and then they also showed some some more of the updated cosmetics and stuff that are coming and like what's in the technical test isn't quote unquote representative of the full game but i imagine if halo infinite is going to be a thing that lasts for years and years and years much like Warzone or Call of Duty, they're going to bring back old characters, old maps, and old weapons and old game modes to to both keep it relevant and to draw in those faithful fans that will be looking for that classic Halo experience. The, the question is, I guess, how how will all these new mechanics blend with with those old maps? Because even just the idea of like being able to run, right? Like yeah, you couldn't do. I think before. that too, because a lot of the Although, as Kian said, like some of the maps we've seen in the technical preview are, in a way, just as small as some of the maps we've seen in older Halo games. But the fact that you're able to sprint and it adopts a lot of the sentiment, a lot of the sensibilities of modern shooter, almost makes them feel smaller because they're not built for classic Halo firefights in the way they should right. be. But part of me thinks a lot of the stuff people are looking for in Halo, it being the sprawling maps that make use of vehicles and team play i both think we haven't seen those yet in the multiplayer side of things and with the campaign boasting an experience that is going to be semi-open world in a way like perhaps a lot of that stuff will be nestled away in the campaign in ways we don't expect but and it, it, it's interesting that you bring up vehicles because i mean i don't understand how you could do a halo technical test without any vehicles because they were um, in the menus like you could see all of them but they were just nowhere in the maps yeah it's, it's really strange and again they were small maps i mean one of them no it's probably too small to have mongooses even um yeah but i don't understand like you know this is people's first look at uh, halo infinite and you know it's it's an insider test yeah sure it's not an open beta but halo is an, a massively successful and beloved series um People are going to want to know what the people who played this actually felt about it. Yeah. And to have a Halo technical test without any warthogs or banshees or mongooses or wraiths or scorpions, I mean, you are eliminating one of the fundamental aspects of this series that has made it the juggernaut that it is in shooter history. Um, I was like, I understand, right? Maybe, Maybe the big maps aren't ready yet. But if the big maps aren't ready yet and you can't, like, you know, offer up what is essentially, 
I, I would say half of the Halo multiplayer experience relies on vehicles. If you can't show that yet, then why not delay the technical test by a little while? Yeah, because it's out in November. Like, that's not that far away. True, but at the same time, I'm just like, you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's three months away, right? But if this is just for insiders and to build, like, you know, sort of, I don't know, to get impressions out there and, you know, incentivize coverage. Yeah. It would be better to delay it to September or even October to have this test if it meant that people could actually get a proper taste of what this game has to offer. And, you know, they're going to do another technical test. And maybe that one will be very different. And maybe I'll be far less ambivalent then. And maybe I'll be singing Infinite's praise. But right now, I'm just confused about the decision to actually open this up for people to play, especially longtime Halo fans and especially people who fell off the series. Because, I mean, I played Halo 4. I thought it was okay-ish. I thought the lore was incredibly convoluted and I thought there was no need to bring Master Chief back after ODST successfully told a story without him. And then I played like two hours of Halo 5 and was like, nah, I'm yeah. not, I'm not no devoting time to this. Like, I feel like the thing is, I imagine they'll do a more publicly advertised multiplayer beta of sorts before the launch. That will be I suppose a way for everyone to get their hands on the game and almost like justify a purchase or a Game Pass subscription. Like as you said, like throwing this technical test out on a random weekend with such like a minimal amount of maps and features is to be brutally honest, after waiting almost six years for a new Halo game, somewhat underwhelming. Because like all the trailers for Infinite like got me so so excited. Like even the gameplay demo that underwhelmed a lot of people, you could see a lot of the potential there. And a lot of that is still in the technical test, but without a lot of the things that make it feel like signature Halo, part of me is worried. Like there's like an equal ex- equal amount of excitement and worry for this game. Like I really hope it sticks to the landing. And that's a great point as well, because if you contextualize the timeline of Halo, from Combat Evolved to Halo Three, that was six years. Yeah. It has now been six years since the last Halo game. If you think that Halo was able to tell the original trilogy's story in the same space it's been since we got a incredibly lackluster Halo game, Infinite has an immense amount of heavy lifting to do in order to restore this series' prestige. Um, and I, listen, I'm not unconfident that it will. I really want Infinite to be excellent. But there's a reason why I am extremely hesitant to say that i am excited for this game or that i like you know it's one of my most highly anticipated games of the year or anything like that and it's because i'm not sure whether or not i should place faith in this yet and the technical test unfortunately didn't do anything to affect that yeah it's disappointing to hear because i i I think that the impression is definitely that 343 is on the back foot and that they have to do a lot to restore trust um, especially after, you know, our, our first uh, reveal trailer was, was unimpressing and led to a year-long delay. The fact that this is our first time to actually get our hands on it and it's not blowing everyone away. I mean, the expectations don't feel unreasonably high. I think people just want classic Halo. They just want the Halo that they know and love. And I don't. it sounds like so far we're not seeing that. I really don't envy 343 industries and the position they've been put in like they're living up to a legacy that's almost like impossible to deliver on like someone's going to be unhappy with halo infinite whether it's good or bad i think it's true i mean it sounds like you're both saying it was fun 
Like you had fun. It just wasn't quite. Wasn't. I'm excited to see more. I think it's Mm -hmm. it's probably the most optimistic thing I can say. Like I love the gunplay, and it has a lot of potential. It all depends if that's capitalized upon in a way that doesn't lose why I love Halo so much. I mean, when is it not going to be fun to shoot a needler and you know feel that in the controller and watch the spikes explode after they you know on impact with someone? He still says double kill. That makes me happy. Yeah, like stuff like that. And I don't mean to be like, you know, oh, bring back old Halo, because as Jade said, like, I don't envy 343 either, because, right, you've already put two games into your trilogy, and to completely dismiss those is to, like, you know, publicly admit, well, I fucked up. Um, Yeah. Which is not a nice position to be in, and, like, that is not a nice position to be in whatsoever. Um, But at the same time, Ever since Halo 4 came out, people have been saying, we want more of the original stuff. And, you know, if you're a developer and you have a vision, you're like, yeah, well, maybe I don't want to do the original stuff. But Infinite is supposed to be the happy medium between those two things where they ditch the convoluted lore and they go back to, like, the classic Halo gun feel. And, you know, they introduce multiplayer maps that are not identical to or derived from, but in some ways similar to the feel and atmosphere of those that we played in Halo 2 and 3 specifically. Because that opinion is near unanimous across an enormous amount of Halo fans. I don't think there are many Halo fans out there being like, no, Halo 3 is shit. I love Halo 5. That's the magnum opus of the series. (laughs) If if that person exists, I would love to meet them because I don't think they exist. Mm -hmm. Um... And I, d- I don't mean to be unfair towards it either. Like, I, I do feel the need to reiterate that it was a technical test. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's three months away from launch and the month, the build itself is several months old. Um, but if this was served up to me as Halo Infinite, I'd say, wow, this is extremely underwhelming and I'm disappointed. And there is no way I'm going to commit to this if it's a live service model. Pack it up, free for free. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Thank you both. Uh, We'll meet up with you a little bit later for a different segment. But next, we're going to talk about Pokemon Go. I'm back now with Stacey Henley and Andrea Sheeran. And we're talking about the Pokemon Go um, pandemic reversion the changes that that we're making to take Pokemon Go back to the way that it was uh, before they made those COVID enhancements. And uh, this is an interesting story because uh, it's gotten a lot of like mainstream attention. I've seen it on news sites like The Guardian and stuff um, because people are really upset. Uh, Stacey, can you kind of explain what's going on? Yeah, so obviously Pokemon Go is a game that you need to play outside. It's called Pokemon Go. Um, And then during the pandemic, when you couldn't go outside, they introduced a lot of different measures that would make that a bit easier. So you didn't need to be as close to a stop to be able to spin it. Um, If you used incense, which you used to like lure wild Pokemon towards you, that lasted longer. It was more effective. Um, They introduced remote raid passes, so you could do a raid as long as you could kind of see it on your screen you need to be standing next to it um and a few other features like that and most of them are going away next month even though the pandemic is still going on and even without the pandemic they kind of made the game a lot better and more accessible for a lot of people so i think the the upset kind of stems from both 
you know, some people are just angry that they're stopping the pandemic features while we have an active pandemic. Um, but also even leaving that aside, it just makes the game a bit better. And it's it's not hurting anyone to have it in, and it is hurting people to get rid of it. So that seems like a weird decision. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like a weird decision all around, like you said. And I, I think a lot of people, uh, myself included, are kind of like armchair businessmen uh, when it comes to this stuff. And we know that Pokemon Go had its most profitable year ever in 2020, despite the pandemic and despite the, the, the lockdown and the social distancing, the changes that they've made to make the game more accessible, as you say, uh, what has driven more people to it. I, I'm sure that there's a lot of reasons, um, but it, it seems incredibly ill-advised to take those things away um, when not only are they working um, as intended, they're, they're, allowing people to play the game um who might have otherwise couldn't um but they're all they're working so well that that the game's more popular than ever uh and now they want to take those things away um let me ask andrea has uh the changes affected you at all have you noticed like the the Mm -hmm. difference in um range from pokestops and stuff like that so I'm actually one of those people. Uh, I wrote a feature about it. What was the 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 big Pokemon Day? Um, the Go Fest. That yeah, that they had this year. Um, I'm quite the noob um, compared to to you and Stacy, but as someone who plays casually, that brought me back to the game that I hadn't played for almost a year. And then I logged back in and I see all these cool changes. Um, I didn't even know there were pandemic changes actually because I was so out of the loop with the game. Um, and I was having a blast and I played probably the most hardcore that I had in ages. Um, you know, we were still, and, and I still to this day am really cautious about going out, but even whenever my partner and I would just, you know, drive to go pick up food, I'm like pulling my phone out and grabbing things in parking lots and things like that. Um, so having those changes brought me back and they've what kept, they're what's keeping me playing casually. And now I notice um, there's one at the end of my street and I can no longer grab it. Um, whenever we go out, um, I always just miss it. So I'd have to like get out of my car and like go walk a little bit to grab this. And it just like, even little things like that are so off putting. Like I'm not about to get out of my car and walk across the street for a gacha game. Like I would rather just put the game down and not deal with it anymore. So it's kind of disheartening to see that the thing that has brought me back is gone now. Um, and I'm not even interested in, in my casual playing, you know, I'll spend like a couple bucks here and there just to like get an incubator or something, but nothing like really intense. So I'm probably not going to do that anymore. Yeah. And that's really the thing. Like you said, it's those, those it, it's the little things, but I think that be, because it's, this game is so personal it's such a personal experience because it's your neighborhood, like your city where you live, the places you go. Having these changes like directly impact each individual person to the point where it's like, uh, oh, when I sit at, uh, like, like my partner, she sits at her desk at work and she can spin a sign on occasion, but now she can't reach it. Like, and I think everyone has a, has a story like that now, like something that they could get to. There's a park that I really like and I, and I take my lunch breaks at this park and I like to sit there because there's four signs I can reach from one spot and now I can't reach any of them. And, and those things don't really seem like a big deal. It's like, just get up and move over there. That's the point of the game. 
but it it really stacks up against you when you when people got into this routine and it became this uh a, a comfort you know especially over the last year uh and to have that taken away it feels like really bad Stacey, how did, how do you feel about it yeah, I think what you mentioned there about this idea of oh, that's how the game's supposed to be played. It's supposed to be played on the move. I just not entirely sure that's true anymore. Like mm-hmm. I am, I saw a wild Venusaur the other day. Never seen a wild Venusaur in the game before ever, um, and I just didn't care. You know, like <laughs> I I have several Venusaurs. I have a shadow Venusaur. I have a purified Venusaur. I have a shiny Venusaur. I think that what the game was originally has changed so much that. People play in a completely different way now, and I think it is more now of a casual game that you can kind of sit with and do a few of the things because you know the the spinning stops, the doing the raid battles, the um, the special research and those kind of things. I think they are a bit much bigger part of the game now than you know walking around your street and catching a Pikachu because mm-hmm. most of the rare Pokemon aren't found by catching anymore. That you know there'll be an egg, so you'll do them on raid or you'll get a shiny on community day. So I think the rollback is really the game is trying to go back to what it was five years ago. And it was this huge phenomenon when everyone was out and everyone was moving around and playing it. But I just think the majority of the player base don't play it that way anymore. And it seems strange when it's just had its most profitable year to force the player base to change. Like the way people are playing is working for them. It's working for the game. It's working for everybody involved. I don't see why you would mess with it. Yeah. And so we always knew that these changes were going to be um, temporary, but over the last 18 months, uh, Niantic has been incredibly confusing and vague about which changes are staying uh, when they're getting reverted, they've gone back and forth. We've had a lot of these things did get changed back at the end of 2020, and then they, and then they changed course when it when it seemed like the pandemic wasn't slowing down. Um, one one of the big changes was the remote raids. As far as I know, remote raiding did not exist uh, before, and now that seems like it's going to be a permanent thing. Yeah, the remote raids aren't disappearing. They are one of the few things that are. Are staying, you know, if you're being uncharitable, you would say, well, you can, you can buy remote raid passes. You know, you can't mm-hmm. buy that extra 20 foot or whatever it is, stop distance. So right. obviously they're doing it for the money, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a free game that makes money off people buying things from the store. I don't think there's anything wrong with it keeping a feature that makes money because, you know, it's fairly priced. It's not really that predatory. You get a free pass every day. Um, I think the, uh, the raid passes have been a good addition. So I'm certainly not angry with them staying, but it's quite telling that the one that they can profit off is the one that is remaining. And the one that just makes the game a lot easier for everyone to play is seen as unimportant. Yeah. It's hard It's hard not to have kind of a cynical perspective about all this stuff, especially when we've already seen them go back and forth uh, and take things away and then give them back. It, I, it, it it almost feels like they're taking these things away so that people will get upset and then they'll bring them back so that they'll be celebrated. Yeah, I think that's definitely part of it. Um, it's just been part of the cycle with Pokemon Go, hasn't it? I mean, yeah. Andrea, I know you said that you play mm-hmm. quite casually, but you mentioned this idea of you know, coming back and seeing all these new features that get added. I think it's something that the more committed players maybe don't realize as much how much True. new things get added to the game, whereas players who haven't played for that long Right. Get to see all the changes at once. 
I played, um, when did this game come out? Like 2016? 16? 16 yeah, I played like launch day, you know, whenever it was bare bones, um, not a lot going on, and it was impossible to log into. And I think I played it like hardcore for like six months, and that was it. And then I never opened it up again. Um, so the transition from launch day to what we have now was incredible. Like it was, it's a completely different game. Um, and to, to come back on something that feels so accessible and like, it doesn't inconvenience me, um, and make me go out of my way constantly to chase it was a big part of the pool. And so now I just, that, that pool is, is gone. And I don't know if they, I mean, I'm sure they realize that extra like 20 or or so feet, like you say, like, I can't be asked into like going that far whenever I'm busy. Um, I've got stuff to do and I've got three other mobile games that I play. So I'm just going to crack one of those open instead that don't make such demands of me. I have to imagine that with, with last year being its best year, that there are tons of players just like Andrea that played right at the start and then are now coming back because we're all looking for new hobbies and because they heard the game was good because they heard all this new stuff with the uh the raids the mega raids and um everything else that they've added over the years but and and maybe that's the thing maybe they know that players like andrea aren't going to notice these changes as much Mm. do you think that might be part of it people like I don't know. I guess so, because you think that ultimately, you know, 20 feet or so, you can almost dismiss it as like a, it's, it's kind of subtle, like insidious, like, oh, I gotta, I gotta walk a little closer. Is that part of the game? Because people aren't as, I think I'm a very in tune casual player, right? Because it's part of my mm-hmm. job to be so in tune, but I could see someone like my little cousins that play are like, what the heck? Like, why am I having to get a little closer and not thinking a lot of it and being just irritated? Would that stop them from playing? I'm not sure. I know they do a lot of the raid pass stuff, but like we said, that's staying. Um, I could definitely see it irritating them, especially considering where they live. And there's not a lot of Pokestops to begin with in the middle of Mississippi. Um, But yeah, no, I think I'm probably a weird casual player in the sense that I understand what's happening, but also, I don't play the game a lot. <laughs> so those aren't the only uh, changes coming. They So far, what they've done is removed uh, the bonus range, essentially, from gems and Pokestops, and they even limited the range of remote raiding. Um, but in, in another month, I think right at the beginning of September, there's a bunch more stuff. So um, they're getting rid of the XP bonuses from spinning Pokestops the first time oh. each day. They're getting rid of uh, guaranteed gifts from spinning Pokestops. Uh, they're limiting the number of raid passes you can get. And I think the big one is probably that they're um, taking away that bonus you get from incense. Um, using incense is a great way to uh, attract more Pokemon to catch when you're not moving around as much. And they're going to be limiting um, the effectiveness of those, um, which uh, is another one of those things that they've gone back and forth on. That that went away, then it came back. That went away, and then it came back. So um, we'll see if these things really go away in a month. But my gut is telling me that a lot of these things are gonna come back because people are really upset. Um, yeah, I think it's like the whole you know the, the new coke, isn't it? If you get rid of it and then bring it back. It then becomes a 
a new feature that you can celebrate again. You don't really need to add any content to the game. You can take stuff away and then add it back a little bit later. That becomes mm-hmm. your your new content. You know, the big news for, I don't know, November, December or January is the incense boost is coming back and we're getting this. And I think it's one of those things, again, like you, the hardcore players like me and you are, we're just still going to play the game. Yeah. It's more the more casual players who dip in and out of it who might be kind of brought back with, oh, the incense is boosted. I don't remember that going away because I don't play the game very often. So now I'm going to go back and try this new thing out. The cynical part of me says, is it going to come back and forth as like events? So for a limited time, we bring back, you know, you can get a gift, a guaranteed gift. I didn't actually realize that was happening until you said that. So that's actually really irritating. (laughs) Yeah, that I mean, that's likely. They do do that Uh, Mm -hmm. during community days uh incense are more effective stuff like that or they last longer i should say mm-hmm. um so yeah that that does seem likely um you know the the big complaint that people always levy against uh pokemon go which is completely accurate is that pokemon go is a game for able-bodied people that live in cities and all of these changes that were made for the sake of the pandemic um, serve to bring everyone else into the game. Uh, f- it, it took a step towards not being a game only for able-bodied people that live in cities. And to to get rid of those bonuses, uh, it seems like such a dismissal of all the people that could finally play this game that couldn't before. And I know it seems like small changes, but they really they really do add up. So I totally get why people are upset. I I am too. Um, And there are obviously they're under no obligation to keep things the way they are. It just, it doesn't seem like it's in their best interest to me. I really don't understand why they're doing this. I I mean, I lived in Mississippi for a a chunk of whenever it was at, and then I moved to LA and it's a totally different game um, from someone who lives in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi to, you know, LA, I, I used to take my cousin, um, go pick her up who really lives in like the woods in Mississippi, but loves Pokemon. And, mm-hmm. you know, we would go visit a big nearby city like Memphis, Tennessee or something. And Pokemon go became this game that you played once every other month, whenever you visited the city. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's just, I was going to say that I am, um, I've lived in a few different locations, probably not as disparate as, you know, um, LA, which is one of the best cities in, in the world to play because it's so heavily populated and because obviously um, mm-hmm. there's so many stops, there's so many people, there's so much of a chance that things are going to spawn that you need to spin things. But I've played in a few different um, locations. Like I've played it in London and Newcastle, which is the biggest city to me. And that's completely different even to my like seaside town, which has a lot of attractions and therefore has a lot of stops. So you see that difference. And I just don't really know what the benefit is you know like i under on a logical level i understand why there are more stops in in la because there's more things to point to because it's more populated and that's kind of pokemon go's root is um this idea of being you know a a geography-based game but when you bring in features that level the playing field to then take them away just it just feels like a foolish decision like most times in games companies make decisions and I kind of, I understand it because if I was the person making money out of this game, that's maybe the call that I would make if that was all I cared about. 
but I just nobody benefits from this. You know, right. like a lot of games don't have accessibility features because it's cheaper to not include them. There yeah. is no cost save here. Right. How much does it cost them to increase the range of a Pokestop, right? Nothing. Um and it doesn't it's not even a technical limitation. It's already been done. So you know, I, I live 10 minutes from uh, Disneyland, and if I go over to uh, downtown Disney for dinner, I have, I, I'm not going to exaggerate, 50 stops that I can hit in without barely moving. Um, but, but I have family in Missouri, and there's one stop in, in town, you know? So, so it affects me a lot less, which tells me that it affects... Uh, people that live in urban areas, much less, which is all, most of the people. So, yeah, so fewer people are being affected by this, but the people that are being affected by this is affecting them a lot. It's a it's a big deal for them. So, it, yeah, it's disappointing. I think we've hit it. I think we've all hit it. We're all pretty disappointed by it. It doesn't make <laughs> sense. Um, it doesn't seem like it's in their best interest. And, and for that reason... Uh, the only reason I can imagine they're doing it is so that they can bring it back and and be celebrated for it, which is very cynical. But um, well, we'll see. You know, um, yeah. Anything else? I'm angry. That's it. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so that's Pokemon Go. We'll see both of you back uh, a little bit later for another segment. For now, uh, stay with us. We're going to be talking about the Switch OLED. You're back with Jade King and now joined by Dave Aubrey, the Nintendo guy. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing quite well, thank you very much. He's doing his uh, podcast voice. The podcast I voice have no fancy. idea what you're talking about. So fancy. I wanted to talk to you both about something I'm very excited about, which is the Switch OLED model. Jade, you got to get your hands on it uh, last last week? Yes, yes, last week. Time okay. is time is not a concept in my brain anymore. Uh is this the greatest handheld console ever created? Yes or no? Jeez. Wow. Maybe. Because you know, a lot a lot of a lot, a lot, a lot of people, hesitance. A lot of people say the Switch is the best handheld ever made, and this is in definition just a better version of the Switch. So when you consider it that way, yes. I mean, I love the Vita, but the Switch OLED is it, it's far more impressive than I expected it to be going in. So walk us through, what it, what did you get to do? How long did you get to play with it? So I went down to London, this was last week, and I met up with Nintendo, like Mr. Nintendo himself. Like obviously. Oh wow, he was there. Yeah, he was. And then basically they sat me down, gave me a slideshow, the fun, the corporate side of things, and then they just put the Switch OLED in my hand. So that was... Like I, ha I held it in my hands, and they they walked me through three different demos. I started off with Mario Kart because they clearly set up a selection of demos to show off the hardware. They weren't showing anything new, so I played Mario Kart, the opening of Breath of the Wild, and about twenty minutes of Super Mario Odyssey. And this was all handheld play. They wouldn't let me dock it, but they okay. they put the dock in my hands, and I was able to get a really good feel for the hardware. 
and like how it compares to the original Switch because they had the older models on display as well, which you could look at and almost make a comparison, even though we couldn't take pictures or anything. Oh, you so, couldn't? No, they wouldn't allow us. Like, no photography or nothing. But we already know what it looks like. I know, it doesn't make sense. Like, Okay. I mean, did it, weird. did it look like what you expected? It looked better than I expected. I think. Oh. I think just as a product, even though it's only £30 more, I'm not sure that translates to in dollars, it feels like a significantly more premium product, which I think is partially thanks to the OLED screen, because it is simply when it's put in your hands, the lack of a bezel around the display and the somewhat larger size of the screen really helps it pop. Like it feels more akin to a high-end tablet, like an iPad or a Samsung Galaxy tab than it does the Switch. Like this makes the launch Switch almost feel dull in comparison once you play games on this. Yeah, so that that's the big thing is the, the screen itself, right? There's very few other changes. Yes, I did... I pushed them on this. I was I was quite cheeky. I asked them like where it sits in terms of performance and they were very quick distressed. This is another member of the existing Switch family. Like you could buy the new dock and simply use it on your original Switch. And in terms of like performance and internals, it's exactly the same. And I I tried to put this to the test in Breath of the Wild because that game is very much not never ran particularly well even at launch like if you go into mm-hmm. combat sequences or a place with lots of fire or effects the frame rate will tank and i've yeah. done i deliberately did that i'm not sure nintendo are very happy because they were asking me what i was doing and i deliberately went into the open world ignored the story they wanted me to go on just so i could blow up some barrels and watch the frame rate tank <laughs> and it, it did as i expected so people coming into this shouldn't expect a big upgrade but that being said, we don't. I don't personally know if the dock has any newfangled internals in it beyond the Ethernet cable. So mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. we'll see some minute improvements there. But this is very much the same console with a significant aesthetic upgrade. But I, I still think, given there's only a £30 difference between this and the vanilla Switch, it's a very small increase that I think is worth doing if you don't own a Switch yet. Like this is this is this will be the model to own if you want docked and handheld play. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's if you don't have a Switch, this is it. Like this seems to be the replacement for the uh, for the launch Switch. But for everyone else that already has one, is do you think it's kind of a tough sell? I very much do. Like with me, I've uh, I've earned I've earned I've owned the Switch since launch, so it is showing its age a little bit in terms of like there's a few scuff marks on the screen and stuff like that. So I can justify like upgrading myself both for work and for my personal life. But if you bought a Switch like last year or you're not you're only really interested in portable play and only and already own the Switch Lite this is somewhat of a tough sell. You're not getting anything extra out of it beyond the OLED screen and some of the quality of life changes. Dave, where are you at with the Switch OLED? Are you thinking about getting one? Okay, so I already put my pre-order in. All right. Um, me too. So, so okay. For me personally, I'm in a... You know, we're all in the, this unique situation where we're doing like games media... As, as a career, and gamers, therefore we can you know. kind of yeah, we are hardcore gamers. We are the gamer collectively, 
and you know we can sort of justify these purchases a bit more than the average consumer hashtag consumer can and uh sorry um so so yeah you know we're in that unique position but also like you know i'm one of those people that kind of likes to play with their hardware once it becomes obsolete uh and therefore you know i got that launch day switch can't wait to do some wee soft mods on that um play around with that a little bit that's and that was another reason uh for me to actually like upgrade i was like okay finally i've got like a somewhat better experience than my launch day switch and i can i can put that upgrade in uh having said all that you know I was hoping for a Switch Pro. I was hoping for for a, for a, a slight power bump. You know, like I was thinking in my head, you know, this power bump would be on par with like what we've seen with, with Nintendo handhelds in the past, like Game Boy to Game Boy Color, uh, DS to DSi, mm-hmm. 3DS to New 3DS, etc. Um, and that's that's what I expected. And of course, we're not getting that. Uh, however, from a business perspective. I think it's smart from Nintendo because they've clearly seen that that the Switch isn't really slowing down in terms of sales momentum. Therefore, there's no reason to revitalize the marketplace. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so you know they can they can ride this out for a little bit longer. They can slowly phase out the original model Switch with this and the Switch Lite, and I'm sure when a Switch Pro does eventually come, and I'm sure it will, when it does. This that will probably usurp the OLED, uh, but now that the OLED the OLED is here, that might be a couple of years away. I'm pretty sold on the OLED too. I think that uh, it, it's a difficult thing for when we talk about people upgrading their switches. It's a difficult thing to assess what that upgrade is just by like trailers and photos. Like, I think you do have to actually see it and hold it to to understand what a what a big upgrade mm-hmm. it it is absolutely um because when we're we're talking about fractions of an inch you know just like a millimeter or two difference between screen sizes but when the screen is that small that that's a big difference like that it's a i don't i don't know a 10 percent increase in size i'm not sure exactly um, yeah but it's significant enough um that it seems to make a big difference jade is that right yeah, it, it's very much a relative upgrade. Like, as you said, it's something when I was going to see it, I very much expected to be underwhelmed. But when that device is put in your hands, it, it feels like a step forward. But I think talking to people v- purely through trailers and stuff, it's very difficult to emphasize like the vibrancy and the color OLED screen brings to ga- brings to all of your existing games that the base model really can't. And especially for the price of the system, like it seems like a fairly good upgrade to me. I don't work with Nintendo. I'm, I'm just trying to be honest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and people see it's still 720p. Like that's a yeah, that's the a resolution problem. numbers people really latch on to. Um, my question, I don't think you can answer this from just playing it a bit, but it seems to me that if the screen is uh, is upgraded, is like brighter and perhaps pulling more power but the battery and everything else is the same won't it have a worse battery life than the I regular switch this model of the switch is the most recent one whereas i think the launch model was three to five hours but they introduced iterative upgrades 
So I think now oh. the average battery life is around six to eight hours. But I think there's, I a, lot of, there's a lot of leeway depending on what games you're playing how loud the system is and how bright it is but that is a good question because part of me is assuming that the oled panel will draw more power and thus have a bigger impact on the battery i actually have i actually have an answer oh come okay. on Dave. Uh, when when the oled was launched i had to you know go onto the product specifications page on the nintendo website and uh yeah as jade said the original launch day switch did have like a slowly slightly lower battery capacity than the then a slight revision that came out later. You can uh-huh. only tell because the box was different. Um, that revision and the Switch Lite from that point on basically said, you know, in handheld, 4.5 hours of Breath of the Wild. That's their measure for how good a Switch battery is. And if you look at the OLED page, it still says 4.5 hours for Breath of the Wild. Okay. So whatever they're doing, it's not much. They want to keep parity at least, mm-hmm. you know? It's likely that OLED technology draws less power than a normal LCD. I don't know. Um, but I just know that it's a better screen. So that was a question. Yeah. I had. Mm. Really, the the only thing that's keeping me from it is that it uses the regular Joy-Cons. And I understand that it has to so that they can keep selling Joy-Cons. Um, but if it had bigger, better controllers, uh, I for sure would be buying it, even if nothing else was changed. Uh, but yeah. That's sort of what what I'm waiting on. Someday, I, hopefully. I feel you. I feel you. I feel you. Okay. It's like I've I got I got two pairs of Joy-Con at launch. I couldn't you know I can't I couldn't resist, and uh, got got drift on pretty much all of them. Yeah. Um. That's the way. Yeah, and you know I, I you know I opened up the shell and put in that little piece of electric foam that people were talking about online at the time. You know I did yeah. all the hacks. I'm going to do the little cardboard hack eventually. Um. And I bought a pair recently, which aren't drifting, and they work really well. I really like them. Played for them with Skyward Sword. Yeah, I know for now. And uh, yeah, the for now is the 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 interesting point because I don't know how long they're going to last. And I I am afraid of like once again messing up my Joy Cons and making them a nightmare to play with. But on the other hand, I really like the fact that Nintendo is making it so we've got that accessory compatibility going on, you know, like, yeah, we mm. can, if I, you know, I'm sure you can still fit. I'm assuming, I'm assuming you can still fit the, uh, Hori switch pad pro split pads there. Split Whoa. pad pro. Yeah. One more time. I'm assuming you can uh, fit the split pad pro on the OLED. Yeah. And for sure. That'd be a good replacement. However, you know, it's, it's not perfect. You will need new screen protectors, obviously, but I wonder if all yeah. of our nice form-fitting cases and stuff, if we'll have to replace those. Um, I'm taking a get. Jade, you no. can verify this for me, because I'm because like if if the Joy-Con fit on it, I'm assuming that it's gonna pretty snugly fit into most yeah. same thing. It's got roughly the same dimensions. Like Does it feel any like as Eric said, like the screen size difference is negligible like in the grand scheme of things but it seems bigger when it's in your hands like mm-hmm. yeah oh and the kickstand is sick the, the kickstand <laughs> is very impressive now like, i will mention that but i i assume all existing accessories will work with this seamlessly what about the old dock oh good question because i have i have the the one that came with it of course but then i've bought in other like off-brand ones too um, and I wonder if the new switch is going to fit that or if I'll need all new ones. That's a good question. But um, 
I, I believe, if I remember correctly, that Nintendo said that uh, ducks should be fully compatible, but don't take my word for it, not yet. <laughs> um, yeah, the, I guess the that port, the Ethernet port, um, that's a big deal. I mean, I'm sure we all have uh, separate ones. Like, as soon as Smash came out, I bought some kind of USB attachment that turned it into an Ethernet, but who knows how, like, reliable or good that is compared to one that's built in. Yeah. I'm yeah, hoping I, that... I, I bought the same sort of thing back when Smash Wii U came out. I'm still using it with my Switch now. Yeah, uh, and I... huge Go latency on. issues, though, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so maybe this is, like, a secret buff for Smash. So it's for this would be all over Evo these things. Switch I over. do feel like this is you know Nintendo to a degree saying to the players that you know if you want the premier online experience, this is the way to go. I do yeah. kind of wish that they would just put better wireless cards in the Switch. Never. I mean, uh, I think you could probably remember when the the Switch first came out, people were complaining about the Joy-Con not having very good range when docked. Mm -hmm. Like if you cupped it in your hand or put it behind your back. No, you that's like, true. Yeah. yeah, so so the Switch in general could use better wireless cards, both for, for the Joy-Con and, and for Wi-Fi, uh, and that would be nice, but it, it, it seems with the Ethernet port that Nintendo are pretty adamant that, you know, if you want the premium experience, you get extras. And you'll be able to get that dock separate, like if you still have the old Switch, right? Yeah, they said you can buy the so. dock separately and it'll be compatible. That's what makes me believe that You'll be able to do the switcheroo with the old and the new docks. Right. That they'll be the same. I think if nothing else, I'll I'll get the dock because yeah. I, I guess we'll need to find out if it does make wire or if it makes um, playing online better. Um, I doubt it. You don't think so? I, I I doubt it, but we can hope. You know. Yeah. Um. Cool. Uh. Jade, what's the release date? Oh, October the eighth. And I, I imagine fairly sure. I imagine you'll probably want to have gotten pre-orders in already, though. <laughs> yeah, I think I pre-ordered two, but like, I'm not going to pay for two. Like, I think I've got the, I've got the, ni <laughs> I've got the nice white one, and I've got the neon one. But I need oh, to, okay. I need to maybe flog, um, become a scalper. I don't know. Yeah, well, if you if you didn't manage to get your pre-order, uh, find Jade King on Twitter. Yeah, hit me up if you need to switch <laughs> OLED. Do not do that. <laughs> Mate, right? Let's do it. Thank you for that preview, Jade. And Dave, you can stick around because we've got a lot more games to talk about in our next segment. Be right back. We're back with Key and Dave and Andrea, and we had quite a few more games uh, to talk about this week. So we're just going to kind of go in a speed round through uh, a few of the newest releases. So, Dave, let's start with you. Tell me about Apex Legends' new Season 10, Emergence, right? Yeah, Apex Legends, Season 10, Emergence, everyone's favorite Nintendo Switch game. It is finally out with a brand new season, <laughs> brand new character. No, don't laugh. No, no, not after the OLED segment. You gotta still say you, Nintendo's the are best. Are you telling me you're only... Are you only playing Apex on your Switch? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Okay. God, no. right. Could you imagine? Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> sorry, I just wanted to throw you. Uh, yeah, no. Apex Legends Season 10. Real good. 
uh, has ranked arenas, has new character, uh, has new gun. Okay, that's nice. <laughs> start with let's start with the new character, Seer. Right? Yeah. What's what's okay, his, what's so his deal? He's a recon legend, which means he basically just uh, locates the enemy team. You can aim down sight, and you'll get like a small passive heartbeat sensor. And when enemies are within like seventy-five meters and moving around, the heartbeat sensor will throb, and you'll know an enemy is in that general direction, which is nice. Mm. Uh, his tactical ability is like a large cylinder which shoots in front of him for about the same range as the heartbeat sensor. And this one does ten damage, which isn't a lot, but it does locate. It does show you where all the enemies are within that range, and also it shows you their health bars, which uh, makes it really interesting and good to like target the weaker members of the team. And finally, there's the ultimate ability, which throws down like a huge spherical dome, uh, which in which you just see everyone that's walking around, unless they're crouched. That's it. That's it. That's the character. It's interesting to me. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a pro player. I don't suppose either of us are. But no. we've had this like pretty strong meta for a while now. That's hyper aggressive uh, with mm. uh, with remnant. An octane, that sort of combo. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting now to get a more, uh, I, I guess, like a tankier character, one that's meant to like set up position. Is that? Do you think that's? Let me ask that first. Is that how Seer's meant to be played? As sort of um, holding a position? It seems like his abilities lend towards that. Uh, so I feel like if you did pair him with one of the defense legends like Gibraltar or Watson or Caustic, I feel like you definitely could play that because you could anticipate where the enemy is going to approach from. However, the tactical ability is really what sets Seer apart. And this ability, uh, not yeah. only did I, I said it goes in a big uh, cylinder shape in front of you and you get to identify where people are, but it also interrupts the use of heal items and revives. So if you have damaged a team from a long distance and they're quickly jumping okay. behind cover to heal up, you can shoot that at them to stop them from healing entirely. Like I said before, see their health bars and then you can really nail down and target them. So in that sense, he has the potential to be incredibly offensive, but for the most part, not always. So this is not the hard counter for the, the rush meta that maybe people were hoping for. No, no, but there, there, there were some of a slight balance changes to uh, Re in Death Totem. It's, it's more obvious when uh, the Totem ability is running out to the enemy team. There are other small, other small changes similar to that across mm. the legends. So they're tackling it, but not in a way that the community will like. But the community doesn't actually like anything, so that's fine. True. Uh, okay, so tell me about the map changes to World's Edge. Uh, they're fine, honestly. Like World's Edge has always been my least favorite map, and this does uh, make one of the yeah, more boring areas more interesting by overhauling it and giving it. Uh, more dynamic variables. Jesus Christ, I was struggling for a word there. Uh, there's like gondolas which go between these. Uh, <laughs> which area changes? It's uh, the, you know, where the, what is it called? The train station next to Meltdown in World's Edge. The, that's, that got overhauled. There's like big lava flow rivers underneath, and there's like uh, multiple bases and like big gondolas right. that just swing between them. So it's interesting. You can potentially sneak up on an enemy tactically or get distance very quickly. These gondolas move pretty fast. They can't be stopped or anything. Um, but, you know, it's still 
my le- my least favorite map, honestly. You know, uh, for someone then... who's played Apex as much as me, I have I have so few good things to say about it these days, and that's not the game. That's <laughs> me. It's it, it's a me problem. <laughs> they need to break I, up I with mean, respawn. The the reception <laughs> to the season though, does it seem like people are happy about it? I honestly have no idea. I try not to I try not to pay attention to people. I don't trust them. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I think it's nice. That's oh jeez. If I was to write a review, there we go. It's nice. That's Seven a out great of 10. review. What about the the rampage? Good gun? Okay, yeah. The rampage is cool. Uh, it's a it's another light machine gun. It's another heavy ammo type, but it's uh the Spitfire is in the supply drop now, so it's not like there's two heavy ammo light machine guns on the floor. It has a very mm. slow fire rate compared to most weapons. It's actually pretty comparable to like the G7 Scout, which is not an automatic. Um, but you can speed up that fire rate by putting a thermite grenade inside it. So if you're willing to sacrifice a thermite grenade, the fire rate gets a big boost, and you can quite easily uh, kill a fortified uh, max shield legend in less than two seconds if you're managing to laser them. So it's a, it's a gun which is very interesting, especially when it has the lower fire rate. It's still good to use at long range because there's not too much recoil and then when it's got the faster fire rate you can really uh, go up against someone but uh, if you're doing close quarters uh, combat and you don't have that fire rate upgrade you'll get overwhelmed so swings and roundabouts I uh, I particularly like the design of the rampage because it's got a drum stuck to the the buttstock so I suppose you imagine that the bullets just sort of flow through the stock all the way to the front of the gun so that's a lot of fun. We all love that. We all love that. <laughs> I, uh, when you stick a grenade in it, it kind of flames up a bit. I'm like, oh, that's nice. Ooh, Seven out of that's ten. That's fun. <laughs> all right. That's Apex. Andrea, tell us about... Uh, you and I played the Back for Blood beta yesterday. Yes. And uh, we played PvP mode. To, do you want to explain how that worked? Yeah, so we did the PvP and PvE. So the PvP, um, it's a little chaotic. Uh, I talked about this a little earlier. Um, but it was, it, you know, you have one side that's the cleaners and one side that's the ridden. And I'm not someone who actually played, like, a lot of Left for Dead PvP or anything. I'm sure, like, one night on Xbox Live as, like, a high schooler I jumped in. Um, but you mentioned it, it, it it's kind of got the similar same idea, but of course, this adds layers. Um, so now we've got this whole card system, and it's kind of how you can decide what you want to be on the cleaner side. Like you can be a medic, um, a soldier, operator, whatever it may be. As we learned, um, you should probably talk that out before so somebody can heal, um, lest we all end up dead again like we did the second round. Um, and then, of course, you can be three different, I believe, special zombie types. And all of those ridden types zombies all of those ridden types have their own subtype kind of thing so you can be one that like focuses on melee or you can be one that um grabs long range or whatever it may be i chose tall boy um solely based on the fact that they're called tall boys mm-hmm. um and that's an excellent name for an enemy um but yeah no, the pvp is the best out of three um so you kind of go on these rounds where you're back and forth um, and you have this this kind of period in the beginning where you're hunting and looking for items, and those are random. And as we've learned, that that 30 seconds, 45 seconds, whatever it is at the beginning, kind of determines the way that that round is going to go. 
um feels like that yeah yeah like i i found garbage way too often but if i could find you know some some health items or something in a defibrillator um i had a much easier time the pvp mode also leverages the card system uh (laughs) from the regular pvp pve mode so you're getting options uh of upgrades to get between rounds which is kind of cool you build your deck outside of the game mode depending on like what kind of uh upgrades you'd like to have and then between rounds you get to pick do i want more stamina or do i want more health or whatever so that's kind of interesting and then the the ridden is it really ridden yes it is ridden i keep calling them zombies because i ridden does not come natural to right me. the freakers uh, they all get points to spend for um, you, you kind of have like three different upgrade paths for them. Uh, but it's really interesting to, to me that they've put so much RPG mechanics into this game mode where every round lasts about a minute. I think our longest round was we survived just over three minutes. Like our best round was yeah. like three minutes and two seconds, right? Yeah, I watched a video of someone else playing, and they lasted four, which was incredible. And it was just one dude, kind of like one of your strategies that you pitched of, I'm just going to run the clock. (laughs) It was literally just one (laughs) dude, like, can't catch me. Yeah, there was one game that I put all my points into stamina, and then once (laughs) everybody dropped, I was like, I'm not picking you guys up. I'm just going to run in circles, (laughs) try to run the clock out. I think there are strategies. So yeah, to that end, I think there are some cool strategies that you can try to take, but at the same time, like these are two minute rounds. Like it doesn't seem like it's that going to be that deep. And like you were saying, it seems like get finding good gear makes all the difference. Like if one team finds pills and finds some like purple upgraded weapons and the other team just has like white SMGs, you already know who's going to win, which, uh, I don't know. That that doesn't seem that fair. An RNG element winning. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's kind of, it's very chaotic, but you've got to find a way to kind of control the chaos if you're on the, the ridden or the cleaner side too, I guess. But for the ridden, I realized we kept spawning like as soon as we could come up and we did not coordinate when we spawned. And so right. my slow ass as a tall boy, like toddling my way over to a group of four cleaners, I just got like mowed down by some machine guns before I could even like grab them. Yeah, that's a good point. As the ridden, you respawn every time you die. Whereas as the humans, once you die, the like the round ends. So you mm-hmm. as the zombie players, you really have to coordinate when you attack because like you were saying, if you just trickle in, it's not gonna be a good time. Yeah. Uh, and the, they die the, really easy. They do. And the cleaners should stick together too, it seems as we learned, because I kept running around the behind buildings and dying by myself and no one could get to me. So my favorite ridden was uh boy, I don't remember the name, but it had it could spit at people and the spit would bind them so they couldn't yeah. move. Uh but you didn't actually have to hit them, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh as long as you spit in the general direction of a cleaner, it would lock them down. Um, and then what's, what I think makes that cool is that, uh, the, there's a certain class, I think it's the operator. They can break out of that, but other classes can't. So Mm -hmm. when you're playing the spitter, you have to try to identify 
wh- which one is going to be more vulnerable to that attack. So I think there is like a lot of like mental calculus that's going on in these like short two minute rounds that makes it interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So the the beta is ongoing now, right? I think it starts today. Yes. It, it, does it start tonight or is it going on right now? I think it starts tonight. I want to say. I yeah, I think know that. Our, our embargo was at like noon, so I think it does start later tonight. Um, yeah, and that's going on for I don't know. <laughs> I should have looked this up the over the weekend? weekend. I think so. Yeah, I, I believe it's over the weekend. Yeah. Cool. People are really excited about that one. Mm-hmm. Um, Kian, can you tell us about The Forgotten City? I will, but before I do so, I just want to say, every single time you say Tallboy, I just think of Dishonored. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I forgot about that. It's a good name. Yeah. I- I've always thought it was a great name because Dumwall is like 100% the best video game dystopia on the planet mm-hmm. um, because of absolutely everything. Um but yeah, the tall boys in that are brilliant because they're absolutely horrifying. Yeah, they um, are. But yeah, uh, the Forgotten City, um, you know, started life as a Skyrim mod. Um, mm-hmm. Three devs worked together and also outsourcing bits to convert it into a full-fledged game. Um, it takes place in a subterranean ancient city that is completely detached from anywhere else. There's... There's supposedly no way down there. One assassin from Nero does manage to find his way down somehow. Um, I mean, I suppose anyone who gets there... Uh, I don't want to say anything because that would be <laughs> a spoiler. Yeah, I have to be extremely <laughs> careful here. Um, but yeah, essentially it is this game that revolves around a time loop where you... Every single time you either die or break the golden rule, which I'll explain in a minute, um, you need to rush back to a portal and you will go through the portal and come back out where you start and every single person in the city will have forgotten that you existed um, because you are the only person who is knowledgeable of the time loop. Mm -hmm. But what you end up doing is you speak to these people and you learn about them from loop to loop and you start realizing how to set certain things in place so it gets to the point where you'll start doing things um like say for instance you'll steal um medicine for someone um but that's in your inventory all the time afterwards so when you spawn in you can delegate that to someone else and say hey run to this temple someone there is about to die Uh, and they're like oh how do you know this it was like oh you know i'll explain later and that is one task that you no longer have to do or you can choose not to do that because if you don't do that, you're able to do something else. There are times when you need to actually lose certain objectives in order to progress other ones that will affect a future run. Um, it is without a doubt one of the most intensely clever games I've ever played. Um, it is remarkable at almost every moment you're playing. Um, I, I, I'd say there were at least 10 times I was playing that game where I was in genuine awe at how they managed to pull something off. Um, and as well, the way it evolves is very unexpected. Um, aside from trailers informing me that certain things would come into the game later on, if you're going into that with no prior knowledge of it, it will keep building at such a ridiculous pace that you'll be like, how did three people make a game this ambitious? Um, 
I don't know. I think the I think the Forgotten City, like you know, there there are some bugs and there are some like you know oversights that are absolutely the product of it being made by a small team, um, whose only prior experience to this was the original mod. Um, so it's not as if these are like you know veteran devs who had like you know an enormous team at their disposal. Um, all of the bugs are justified, um, and also none of them are game breaking. Um, yeah, but. It's a game that is going to enjoy a lot of success in the long run, I would say, because I don't see an industry in which this does not go on to inspire people to do things that this game did that no game did before it. I totally agree. I'm I was so blown away by this game. Uh and I want to we we got to be really careful when we talk about this one, right? Because like the part of the whole experience is just like what you uncover as it goes. Um, but I want to kind of try to carefully set up what the hook of this game is. Cause I think that that's really going to sell it for people. So you, you, it's a first person game. You s- wake up on, on the shore of a river and you stumble into the ancient ruins of like a, a Roman city. Right. And you're uh, beckoned towards a portal. You go through the portal. And when you come out of on the other side, you're in the same city, but it's now back in time. And you're brought to the magistrate of the city, and he explains uh, that he's the one who brought you here uh, because the city has a golden rule. Can you explain how that works? The golden rule is essentially um, the the many will suffer for the sins of the one. So if anybody in the Forgotten City commits a sin, um, murder, theft, something along those lines, the entire city will... Well, you know, the entire screen will go gray. Um, everything is a shade of gray except for sentient golden statues who come to life and attempt to kill you and every single every single other person in the city. You have to escape then. And as I mentioned earlier, you need to get back to the portal um, mm-hmm. in order to start the loop again. But one of the interesting things about this is that, you know, there's a lot of trial and error involved um, prior to your arrival in this city to try and define what a sin is. Because, you know, stuff like murder and theft and arson are obviously off the cards. They're, you know, brazenly sins. Um, but, you know, what about insulting someone or like, you know, starting a rumor about someone? Like, you know, the, there are people who would argue that on a moral basis, those things are sins. Except people are able to do things like that and along those lines and get away with it. But also, what does that say about morality, that these people are willing to experiment with a rule in order to exploit it for their own personal gain without informing anyone else that they are able to do those things? Um, It is, as well as being clever from a design perspective, this game's knowledge of history, mythology, philosophy, and just how morality is a malleable thing that is different for almost every person alive is almost jealousy inducing at times. Yeah. Um, I, I like a lot of the subjects that this deals with and will consider myself relatively well read on them. And there were times when I felt this game that I felt stupid and I was like, well, I'm so impressed by this, but also fuck you, the Forgotten City. Why are you making me so, like feel like an idiot? Um, so I don't know. Um, it is 
as I said, it's going to go down as not just one of the cleverest games of 2021, but, you know, this game is going to inspire games for years to come. Um, and I do think that anybody who's even remotely interested in philosophy or like, you know, the different ways to interpret what is moral and what isn't are going to be so blown away by this game that they'll be like, why has no other game done this? Like, you know, for as long as games have existed, there are things that the Forgotten City does that I have never seen before, even in other mediums. Um, it is cleverer than a lot of books, which says a lot, because I think that for the most part, books are inherently smarter than a lot of games. Um, but this challenges that. Yeah, I think it, as you say, it, it does so many new things that it's almost hard to even talk about. I, I think that it has a lot of traditional adventure game systems, like all, you know, going all the way back to Monkey Island, where it's like, get this thing and take it to this person, so they'll give you this thing. And it, it, it's got those simple systems that are easy to wrap your mind around. But so much of the game's challenge is, in fact, just convincing other people of a philosophical position and it's really hard to explain how that works in a video game i mean obviously it's it's dialogue trees but it's so much more complicated than something you would find in like a fallout or just a bethesda game like you really have to uh un understand it's the game's premises and how they build on each other as the story unfolds and i think come up come to your own conclusions about some of these ideas that, that they present to you um you know e even at, in the very at the very beginning of the game there's uh there are some characters that don't believe in the golden rule right there's like a faction of people that are like this is just oppression they're just um they're just telling us that we have to follow this golden rule so that the people in power can stay in power and there's a way to approach that from a sort of like pascal's wager position of like okay well maybe the golden rule isn't real but isn't it in your best interest to act as if it is because if you're wrong then everyone here is going to die and that that's like a very early a very simple concept to wrap your mind around but the the what the game tries to broach the the philosophical ideas just become infinitely more complex as the game progresses i think and by the end you're having like actual debates with characters it's just it's so interesting it's so fascinating you wrote that great piece on how essentially the branching dialogue in the forgotten city is the puzzle equivalent of a modern boss fight um in such a nuanced way that there is no other real means of describing it other than to compare it to that because it is like a boss fight um especially when all of the different dialogue trees with each of the characters start to like weave together um the entire game is essentially one enormous ongoing boss fight defined by multiple branching narratives driven by dialogue that you need to get wrong in order to get right and sometimes intentionally get it wrong in order to get it right later um and as you said i mean you get into full-on socratic debates with some people like you know yeah. This, this game is knowledgeable of Socrates. It's knowledgeable of Stoicism. It is knowledgeable of the early perceived cult of Christianity. It is so ridiculously well-read and well-informed that, as I've said, I'm just like, on one hand, it made me feel stupid. On another hand, I was like, wow, this is so interesting. And then aside from all that, I'm like, 
how has nobody done something like this before? And yeah, for sure, everyone is going to try to do something like this from here on out. Um, yeah. As you said, it's it's intensely difficult to speak about because I do not want to spoil anything for anyone because this is such a good game that I feel even offering the slightest spoiler right now that might even slightly inhibit someone's experience would be a disservice to them. Yeah, yeah, maybe we shouldn't say too much more, but I I, I think that even outside of the game's themes, like let if this particular kind of existential philosophy doesn't grab you, just the game's own mystery and unfolding story is is enough to drive it on its own. Like it is a incredibly compelling story and it's such a fun mystery to unravel. Yeah, like I I don't mean to shred it in so much like, you know, philosophical jargon that it becomes unappealing. It is mm. Like, you know, in and of itself, it is an excellent detective game. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you don't need any pre-existing knowledge of, like, you know, like, you know, Socrates or, like, you right. know, the, the fall of the Roman Empire or anything like that. Um, you can go into this game and just enjoy it for what it is because while it's clever, it's also extremely approachable and it delivers on all of its, like, you know, themes and subject matter in a way that is simultaneously smart and designed so that it can be parsed by anyone regardless of how interested they are in that subject matter. Yeah. And it's really character driven and all the performances are fantastic and all the characters are really unique. It's just, it's, it's the whole package, man. I loved it. I think everybody needs to check this one out. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay. Uh, Andrea and Kean, stick around. Uh, we're going to talk about your most anticipated games of the year and Dave, we'll see you next time. Thanks. I, I get it. I get it. You don't want to hear my most anticipated games of the year. That's fine. I'll go. <laughs> I'm leaving. It's cool. We're back with Kean Stacy and Andrea. And, uh, you know, it's no secret that it's kind of a slow time uh, of the year, especially this month in August. Uh, we don't have too much happening other than, I think, Psychonauts towards the end of the month. So I wanted to get you three together to talk about what your most anticipated games are for the rest of the year. Um, so I asked everybody to come with three games. And we're just going to go around the room and uh, talk about what the most anticipated games for 2021 are. We'll start with Stacey. Stacey, what's your, your number three? Um, I've gone for Guardians of the Galaxy for my third most anticipated game. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I really loved um, the Spider-Man game. I know it's, that wasn't Square Enix. I know that was obviously Insomniac. But like the Spider-Man PS4 game was probably the fav my favorite game that I played on PS4 even though PS4 was a huge console for these big, um, you know, God of War and The Last of Us and Red Dead Redemption 2, all these big, massive story games. I just, uh, I grew up playing superhero games and just accepting that they were going to be a bit rubbish. Mm -hmm. And then when they finally made a good one, it was Batman, and I kind of think Batman's a bit... Yeah, uh, Spider-Man 2. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Spider-Man games were kind of the exception, and even then, some of them yeah. were rubbish. Um, yeah. So I don't know, like... You know, Avengers, Avengers was the letdown. So this is the same studio. Yeah, right? it's, it's, I'm hoping that they've basically gone, that didn't work. Let's do something completely different. Yeah. You know, they, they're going towards that, the single player direction. There's, there's no monetization. There's none of 
all the other stuff that we kind of when you think of Avengers the game you think of lots of other trimmings and extra bits that aren't really part of the game but are part of how the game plans to make money um and Guardians doesn't have any of that so I'm quietly hopeful that Guardians is is going to be a bit of a surprise package of the year I think it looks great too. the The thing I'm worried about is the same thing that I that Avengers had me worry about, where it's it's an MCU proxy, like oh, we're not the MCU, but we're going to use the same characters and have the same tone and lean into the '80s rock music and do all the things that the MCU does, but then you know we use different actors and it's like. I get that you want to go with the version of the characters that are most popular, but just like with the Avengers game, you're just begging for the comparison and it's not going to be as funny as those movies, right? It's not going to be as charming. And it seems like you're, you're getting too close to the line. No, absolutely. I mean, the guardians is a property. You've got so many different characters that you could have included and you could have done something different. You still could have had some of the people, right? You still could have had Starlo, they still could have had Groot and the characters people recognize. But to have all of the characters from the movies and just to confirm that we're going to have Mantis in there as well. Yeah. And have them basically look like they look in the films, right down, like you say, the, the, the outfits, the 80s rock. It is just going to be a take on the film, um, which I think is probably where it's going to fall apart. But if it is anywhere near as fun to play as. Spider-Man was, because that's the, mm-hmm. the big thing with Avengers for me, is it's just not very fun. Like, mm. I don't know how being Iron Man can not be fun. Like, it was more fun to be Iron Man and Anthem. Anthem was terrible. Anthem was terrible. We can all agree on that. <laughs> Andrea, what's your third most anticipated game of the year? Okay. It was between Tales of Arise and Icarus, and Icarus uh-huh. has won um, just because it got I've never delayed. heard of Icarus. What's Icarus? Okay. <laughs> so Icarus is um, this new survival game, and those are totally my jam. Like, I've played Valheim and Ark and The Forest and, like, every bad, like, early access survival game you can imagine I have given my money. Um, are you calling Ark bad? <laughs> it's pretty jank. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it, and I'm going to play the Vin Diesel one. That'll be my 2023 oh, yeah. podcast topic. Um <laughs> But for Icarus, um, it reminds me that the whole like little spiel on it reminds me of this really bad show that I like called The 100. It's like a CW show. It's terrible. I know that show. I love that show. It's really bad though. (laughs) Um, So from what I understand, there's like a a drop ship and you're given like this certain amount of time to figure everything out and like survive the world. And then you come back to your drop ship before it takes off and leaves you stranded. Um, on this planet that's supposed to be like the second earth or whatever um and it's also it's of course like hostile and like there's all sorts of terrible wilderness that you have to deal with and like research and all of that so i mean i think it's like your basic kind of survival game but there's more goals i think is what the the drive is in mine like in valheim i'm just kind of like i i know there's like bosses and stuff that i need to Mm -hmm. to go fight but i just like make houses for days like that's all i do i don't actually like do anything else aside from make houses but icarus seems a little more like objective driven and i'm kind of excited so i can get my friends in on it that sounds really cool uh what platforms (sighs) i know it's on steam i don't know if it's on anything else that's what i'm gonna get it on and is it early access or full launch? I think it's full launch. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Do you know when? 
Uh, it got pushed back to November. It's like way too close now to some of my other favorites that I want to talk about. Uh, November's going to be busy, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be November the something. I should have checked that out. It was originally supposed to be like next week, um, oh, but it okay. got pushed back. So, Okay, cool. New survival game. I'll keep an eye out for that. Kim, what's your number three? Um, before I say that, I want to say the with Icarus, um, it had that really cool. Did you see it, Andrea? The like mm-hmm. whole FMV trailer. Yes, I saw that. That was amazing. <laughs> it's it's so intense. Like it had um like all of these actors and like they are survivors from Icarus mm-hmm. who have like you know been to the planet that you're on. Um, and some of them have come back, but there's this like pre-existing lore that one survivor never made it back. But she's played by an actor in the actual FMV trailer. It's it's really, really strange. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have no idea what they're going to do with that game. But also the guy who makes it, I think his name is Dean Hall, has like summited Everest and done all these like really mm-hmm. intense like survival challenges. So if anyone is going to make a game like that, I think it's probably him. Um, like he did DayZ originally as well, I think. Yeah, um, yeah he did. But my number three is probably Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. Yeah. Um, because number one, we've had two incredible Pokemon games this year in Snap and Unite. Um, probably the most relaxing game of all time and the most frustrating game of all time. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, like, you know, I quite like Gen 4. I think Sinnoh is probably the most fascinating region like aesthetically and conceptually i don't like a lot of the pokemon designs and i don't think the story is like you know particularly special um i'm not really sure any of the pokemon games have a very like you know strong story Mm. um other than like you know stuff like snap which is more emergent where you make your own stories based on like you know sure yeah um but you know aside from that like you know Sinnoh is based on i think it's hokkaido up in northern japan which is where you get all the snow from um and also i don't know like pokemon's track record with mainline remakes is ridiculous um leaf leaf green and fire red like i think leaf green to this day is one of the most important pokemon games ever made heart gold and soul and silver are probably the best pokemon games ever made omega ruby and alpha sapphire sapphire i don't think they like you know have an accolade as the best of anything necessarily but they're excellent so i don't know i see absolutely no reason why brilliant diamond and shine and pearl aren't going to be extremely good despite the fact that people got extremely annoyed about the chibi chibi i don't know how to pronounce that word because i've only ever read it i've never heard anyone say it in real life um chibi yeah? chibi yeah maybe mm. but that art style like you know people became irrationally pissed off about that and i don't really understand why because i'm not sure that really detracts from the experience but yeah, I don't know. I just I, I see absolutely no reason why these games aren't going to be extremely good for anyone who has any interest in Pokemon. What sets Gen 4 apart from the rest of the series? Uh, as I said, I think Sinnoh is probably the best region for mm. a lot of different reasons. Um, it also, like, I mean, it's hard to say, right? Because, I mean, Pokemon's been using the same basic battle code since Ruby and Sapphire in 2002. So that's yeah. 19 years old now. Um, which is why in Sword and Shield, like, you know, it's so sluggish because they have, like, that whole, like, you know, Gigantamax takes up so much time in and of itself. But then also you've got, like, um, you use a move, then a text box comes up, then the health bar goes down, then another text box might come up saying there was a status effect, 
and then there's an animation and then they like every single like back and forth lasts like 15 20 seconds which is intensely slow um but you know gen 4 didn't do anything to revolutionize that really um mm. but it had the underground which is probably one of the more oh, yeah. interesting pokemon gimmicks um it introduced some like you know um third evolutions for pokemon that didn't have them beforehand like you know uh electivire and rhyperior um it also introduced weavile who's one of the best pokemon ever designed in my opinion um it also had an actually decent starter trio because it wasn't just water beats fire fire beats grass grass beats water because they all have dual types that counteract each other um like you know empoleon's grass but it resists um sorry empoleon's water but it resists grass because it's half steel and it resists ground because it's half water so it's actually a balanced trifecta and it's the only game that ever did that with starters um also, like Dialga and Palkia are shit, um, mm-hmm. but I always thought the Lake Guardians, even though they're not like you know the best like aesthetically designed legendaries or mythicals, I don't know what they are. Um, the concept, at least, is interesting. Um, but at the you know then you have Giratina, who like the, what if, what even is Giratina? Like it's a yeah. dragon caterpillar with ghost wings, like and some kind of gold thing on its face. I don't know, um, but. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a hard question to answer, isn't it? Like, you know, what did Gen 4 do? Um, I'm not sure if any Pokemon game has really done anything of special note since Gen 3. I'm looking forward to revisiting it because Gen 4 was the last one that I played before uh, I, like, outgrew or, like, got too cool for Pokemon. So, like, I missed Black and White and X and Y and then eventually came back around um, uh, for Sun and Moon. Uh, but that was sort of the last one I played as a kid, so uh, I'm looking forward to that one. Stacey, what's your uh, what's your number two? Um, I've gone for Life is Strange: True Colors for my cool. uh, number two pick. Um, and really, the only reason it's not number one is because I have a a, a Life is Strangey game coming up as, as number one as well. Because I, the first Life is Strange is one of those games that I can't really describe why I like it. You know, there's a lot of games that I love that I can kind of into words exactly what it is that that game does it it does this thing better than any other game like i love mass effect 2 because i don't think any other game has character interactions uh, on the level of mass effect 2 where all the um all the discussions you have for your squad mates feel like they're part of something bigger i don't really know what it is with life is strange i can't point to a single feature that does better than anything because you know for a choice based game a lot of the choices are, are either obvious or they circle you back around to the same outcome. It doesn't do anything groundbreaking with with that formula. Um, the story arguably loses steam. Bits of it haven't really aged well. But it's just a game that has always meant a lot to me. And then Life mm. is Strange 2 just kind of got overlooked, weirdly. Yeah. I think a lot of people like Life is Strange 1 connected with two, but it didn't have anywhere near the same amount of like cultural impact, I guess, on games. You know, I think most people who play games know life is strange. So I'm looking forward to seeing what True Colors does. I know it's obviously um Deck Nine, it's not the people who made the first two games, it's the people who made Before the Storm. But open world without being a, a weird Assassin's Creed Valhalla eighty hour long open world. You know, it's just like one street that you can explore. That's a really interesting mm-hmm. thing to do with 
with this type of game where you get to steer the story a little bit more. You know, um, Twin Mirror did that unsuccessfully and uh, Tell Me Why did it a little bit more successfully and they were all kind of within the same family of games. So I think it's a, it's a nice piece of growth for Life is Strange and I'm interested to see what they what they do with it. Is there like a magical gimmick in this one? So she's an empath, so she can um, she can tell when people are um, having like she's strong on, emotions. She's on Twitter a lot. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like a mind reading kind of thing. So she can like tell if um, if someone's really angry. She can like tap into what's causing them to be angry. So she she couldn't read your mind. I don't think if you were just sat there doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the the idea is that her brother dies and it's a, in an accident, but maybe it's not an accident, I think is the general premise. So there's a lot of like secrets and things. So if someone's feeling strongly about something, she can, she can read what they're thinking and she can't influence them directly, but by knowing what a person is angry about or worried about or scared about, you can then pick dialogue options that um, guide them one way or the other. That's cool. That's that's interesting. I, I haven't gotten deep into that series. I've played the first one, um, but I, I think this one does look pretty compelling. Andrea, what's your number two? So I'm glad Stacy said that um, Life is Strange was her number two because that's what I had too. But now that means I can talk about Tales of Arise instead. Nice. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of excited for Tales of Arise since it seems like it's like coming back uh, it seems like another like rise to greatness for tales because the series has been kind of trash for a while now. And it gave me some of my favorite games like early on, like PS2, like PS3 era. I really like tales of graces. And then we had Zillia and Zesteria and now I'm trying to play Berseria or however you say it. it, it it's okay. But I think this one gives me something to hang on to that looks like a, a better iteration upon some of the older stuff. I played it under embargo. I just had to check while you were talking. So uh-huh. I, I can't talk about it. Damn. I can't talk about it yet. Yeah, <laughs> which is frustrating. Um, but we'll, we, we'll definitely talk about it on a future episode then. Good. Um, okay. Yeah. Because, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that too. From okay. What I've played. I guess I can say that. Good. Okay. That makes me hopeful. Uh, <laughs> Kian, what's your number two? Uh, Sodorash. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Sodorash is. Um, it is an indie game that I believe was supposed to come out before. I'm not really sure if it was officially delayed or not, but it's kind of had a relatively ambiguous launch window for quite a long time. Um, and also, what I think is the most impressive thing about this game is that I still have absolutely no idea what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> all that's been shown off so far is that it has uh, like an incredible art style and that it is traversal-based, but the traversal is extremely fast. Um and varied um there are trailers where obviously they're all like you know as any kind of like you know 3d platformer there are all different kinds of surfaces that you can sort of manipulate um but there are also like there there was one time where there was this like enormous creature of some kind like you know not anything that looks like a real animal um but it's like flying and like you know you are you are speeding along like it is such a fast game you end up having to like, you know, scale the back of this creature as it's like flying through the sky and stuff like that. I can imagine it's probably going to be quite frustrating because 
the controls are probably going to be pretty precise, but it, it feels like one of those things, like, you know, once you get it, it's intuitive. Um, well, at least it looks to be that way. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Like, you know, I think that fast platformers, um, whether they're 2D or 3D, are things I'm quite interested in. Uh, I love, like, Ori is one of my favorite series in the world because the platforming is completely airtight. Um, yeah. If you die in Ori, it's your fault um, because you have not actually timed your jump right or, like, you know, your grapple or, you know, change your abilities correctly to get to where you want to go. Obviously, what we've seen so far this game is, like, you know, curated footage. So whether or not the final product, you know, matches that, we won't be able to tell. It comes out in September. But it is something that I have been watching every single, like, you know, trailer, like, you know, taking in every little sliver of information ever since it was announced. Um, so the fact we're now a month out is, like, extremely exciting for me. It looks super fluid, really kinetic. I, I'm looking forward to that, too. And the style, the the art style, I think, is really intriguing, too. Yeah, it's, it's like... I don't want to say it like it seems like a hodgepodge of other styles because that makes it sound as if it's derivative and I don't think it is. But there's something about it that I'm like, you know, oh, this is similar to something, but I've never been able to match it to anything. And I think it's just because it's probably because it's so stylish. There's another game coming out um, this month that's also a 3D platformer that I was going to include um, called Recompile. And mm. I previewed that at EGX in... 2019 for edge magazine and that game is also i only got to play like you know half an hour but even with that like the versatility of mobility that affords you is out of this world um, mm. and it takes place inside of a computer so it's like the aesthetic of that one is the, the real kind of like almost sort of like glitch punk um you know, the abilities are all like, you know, you are hacking the mainframe sounds like a really, you know, a sort of conventional term for something like that, but it actually is integrated into how you move through the world. I think that and Solar Rash are probably almost joint for my second most anticipated for largely the same reasons, because aside from aesthetic, they're just super kinetic platformers. Do you know what platforms that's coming out on, that platformer? <laughs> <laughs> um as far as I know, I think both of them might be coming out on pretty much everything. Not sure about Switch, but I think they're both PC, Xbox, PS5. Um, Recompiled, something in my head says it might be Game Pass, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, if it is, that was like a recently revealed thing. Um, okay. But I'm pretty sure Solar Ash is on all major platforms. And what's the release date for Solar Ash? Do you know that? It is mid-september i think i'm okay. not sure of the exact date but it is mid to late september whereas recompile is mid to late august it seems like everything we're talking about is like late september towards like mid-november so it's going to be going to be pretty packed it's super slow right now but we've got a lot of cool stuff coming um okay stacy what's your number one um well i said it was life is strangey um so i've gone for goodbye volcano high which is a title that I've had my hand for a long time, but it doesn't, no one else seems to have. Um, so I think it was revealed, and when they revealed the PS5, um, like when they revealed the, the console itself, and they showed off like 15, 20 games, like it opened with like GTA and Miles Morales was there and a few of them. It was one of the indie games that was there. 
And it's basically an animated version of Life is Strange if the main characters were gay dinosaurs. Okay. Um, so it's the lead, lead character is a non-binary pterodactyl who's leaving high school. And it's, I love like coming of age movies. I don't really know why, because I had a very boring like teenagers. There's no nostalgia in there for me. But I, I love those kind of movies where it's, you know, on the precipice of adulthood and something something new is about to start. And mm-hmm. Good Bible Can I is one of those games that, that captures that spirit, but with gay cartoon dinosaurs that are in a band. Um it's not just I like when I like when video games lean into the unique ways that video games get to tell their stories. Because it seems like quite a heartfelt and a, an emotional thing, you know, it's all about um you know em- embracing the future and unrequired love and you know once you leave high school your life just kind of changes forever that's one of the biggest moments in terms of your day-to-day routine and just how your life is changing but what if we did it with gay dinosaurs you know i just <laughs> I, I like that games are able to do that um so it wasn't my most anticipated at the PS5 showcase because that was Miles Morales, mm-hmm. but it was definitely the, you know, ever since Miles Morales has been out, which came out quite soon afterwards because it was a launch title for the PS5. Good Bible Kind of High has been one of those games that I've had, had my eye on for, for a while. Uh, you know what? I think more devs should be asking themselves, what if we did it with gay dinosaurs? <laughs> so maybe, maybe this will start a trend. Do you know the release date? Red Dead 3. <laughs> yes uh when does goodbye volcano high come out it has the nebulous release window right now of just 2021 so i may well be seeing this game again next year when it gets inevitably delayed and pushed back because there's no not even a month or a, or a window it's just sometime this year which is what it's been since it was revealed last year so it's a bit hopeful right. to put it on the list for actually coming out <laughs> this year but it's still well, technically now they, is. now they have to exactly uh, Andrea, what's your number one? Um, so to the shock of everyone that knows me, it is a Final Fantasy fourteen expansion in Walker. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> All right, take us start at the beginning of Final Fantasy fourteen. <clears throat> take us through okay. every expansion. <laughs> Does everybody have what, a meal? What's, what's coming in? <laughs> what's coming in and Walker? What's exciting about it? So N. Walker is the amalgamation pretty much of 10 years of work coming to a close. And that's why it is so special. Um, it's not the end of the oh. game, but it's the end of an era. It's a good way to put it. Um, okay. So your warrior of light has been kind of dealing with this whole, like these opposing forces of like dark and light this whole time. And that Zodiac and Heidelin. Um, and they're kind of nebulous right now. Like we both kind of know their, their motives on and off and how they tie into all these different factions in the world, these gods. Um, but we don't really know much more about them. They're kind of an enigma. So um, I suspect we'll see more like concrete forms of what they look like instead of just like these apparitions that you see in art and things like that. So we'll kind of come to learn more of their motivations. We're going to end up, um, I suspect, learning more about the Allegans, which is an ancient race that we've heard about since, you know, a realm reborn. Um, we're finally going to go to Garlemond, which is uh, a, a big force that you've also dealt with since A Realm Reborn. So there's all of these burning questions that everybody has had for like, you know, since since A Realm Reborn came out. 
um, that have gone unanswered and N. Walker should deliver on that. Wow. Okay. And you're saying it's not, obviously it's not going to be like the last example or anything, right? Right. So N. Walker is kind of different in that after every, I'll try not to get too in the weeds. After every Final Fantasy expansion patch, you have a couple of story patches that conclude Mm -hmm. that story so it concluded with 5.3 shadowbringers did um so it was mm-hmm. it was about a, a year after shadowbringers came out that it officially like air bunny quotes ended the shadowbringers mm-hmm. arc um and walker will be different in that the expansion the one that you get on lunch day that is the end of the and walker saga so gotcha. patch 6.1 will be a whole new story oh okay okay it's mm-hmm. it's always exciting with especially when things go on for a decade that you're yeah. going to get some kind of closure. I'm sure everybody's super hyped for it, huh? Yeah. And it, it's just got, you know, it, it's got a lot of the final fantasy fan service too. Like anima is in it from final fantasy 10 and the Maga sisters. And then we see all these parables between final fantasy four, which is like one of the best ones, which makes us think about all these people that may die in the game. Um, so it, it's kind of cool to draw these lines and make your predictions on, on some of what we've seen already. Um, when does Endwalker come out? Comes out November nineteenth for early access. Three we days later, will... if you don't have that. <laughs> well, well, we'll all miss you a lot once you're gone. <laughs> I need to take a few <laughs> days off. So, <laughs> uh, and of course, you can play the free trial or whatever the meme is. Yeah, you can play the free trial up to level sixty, and you can enjoy Heaven's Ward. They're critically okay. I'll stop. But <laughs> <Critically> <laughs> <planned>. <laughs> cool. Uh, Kim, what's your number one? Uh, Sable. Yeah. Okay. What is Sable? Sable is an indie game that a demo came out for around two months ago. And I wrote a piece on thegamer.com about how the Sable demo is game of the year until Sable comes out. Um, <laughs> despite the fact the Sable demo is like, I don't know, like two and a half hours long. Um, Sable is this incredible game where, like, I can say this from the demo alone. I have no idea where the story is going to go. But again, this is another game I've been watching for several years. I think I've had my eye on it since like 2018. Um, And it always, to me, even back then, and I can confirm now I haven't played some of it, it sort of channels... Shadow of the Colossus kind of vibes. Um, It takes place in a desert and you have this... I can't remember what they're called in the game, right? But it's essentially like a sort of... um, The desert equivalent of a... What's that thing that you drive through the snow? Snowmobile. 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 The desert equivalent of a snowmobile. It's like it's like Star Wars pod racing almost, right? And when people come of a certain age, they build their own sandmobile, let's call it. Um, that is not what it's called in the game. Um, and they they go on this sort of pilgrimage, which at the moment is pretty ambiguous. Mm. But you play a sable, and it's now the right time for them to leave. Um, but there is all sorts of like fear and trepidation about like, you know, what that means, both from Sable and from all the people who live in this like extremely remote village in a desert, but all around you, um, 
there are, you know, sort of like almost spaceships that have like, you know, crashed and been scavenged. So while you're living in a relatively, you know, not regressive, but a society that is definitely far behind the sort of wreckage surrounding it, um, there are obviously pointers to the fact that this used to be much more advanced. Um, and the way in which the story is told is like, you can talk to NPCs and they have some dialogue and stuff like that. And like, you might get some dialogue options that don't really matter all that much, but most of it like is sort of very governed by restraint. Um, most of what you do, it's not exposition heavy or anything like that. It's more, it reminds me of what, like, I already said Shadow of the Colossus, but it reminds me of what Fumito Ueda, who obviously did Shadow as well as The Last Guardian and Ico, like calls design by subtraction. Um, mm. You know, you design a game and you strip away everything until only the core is left, um, which results in this, like, you know, incredibly minimalist approach to design and storytelling, but is also much more sort of raw. Um, mm. and you know, not all games need that. Not all games would work with that, but this seems to be a game that has been designed from the ground up with that principle in mind. Um, and I don't know, it's from the aesthetic to the concept to the fact that I sort of like when a game doesn't hold your hand and you don't really know what you're doing or where you're going, if it is compelling enough to hold your attention. Mm -hmm. there are games that can try to do that but like you know if there's absolutely no goal in mind and no dialogue and no real point to anything then i'll be like you know what am i doing here um i played the ascent over the weekend i thought it was completely overbearing like it's gorgeous and the visuals are like you know they're fitting but they're also completely oppressive and i was like i can't play this i don't know what i'm doing i don't know where i'm going why am i wasting my time whereas with something like sable where it's much more open and the art style is like almost warm um it's it's almost just relaxing to go around in this mm. little sandmobile and I, I i ended up treating it like a tony hawks game and just doing tricks like off like you know big boulders and shit like you know the demo is two hours long story-wise and it ends with you building your little you know sandmobile but after that i played for another two hours and was just driving around doing nothing because i was like wow this is deadly wow. this is so cool um, is that demo publicly available yeah it's on i think it's only on xbox it's not game pass it's actually on the microsoft store um okay. but i would thoroughly recommend anyone play that because sable comes out early next month in september another game that's coming out in september and i i think this is going to be like you know journey tier indie darling wow cool okay well you've all been uh extremely on brand so i appreciate that uh i haven't thought of mine i guess uh my most anticipated game in 2021 would be uh star citizen that's definitely coming out this year (laughs) (laughs) uh that's gonna do it for this the first episode of the gamer podcast i want to thank you all so much uh for listening we're really excited about the show and getting off the ground and sort of finding our feet so to that end if you have feedback for the show uh, please send it to Kirk McKean on Twitter. He's very excited <laughs> to hear everyone's <laughs> feedback for the show. <laughs> and uh, we will be back next week to talk about uh, probably, if I had to guess, video games. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>